Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. I'm sorry for not releasing episodes for a bit. I just caught a terrible, terrible cold, and, um, well, my voice is kind of back up right now. Still have to answer all the messages because, well, I have to go to Poland in uh, the next few days, do some do some work with students there because I'll be giving, giving them a lecture in the conference about, about war journalism. But uh, for now, I think it's time to return to, well, our... Ukrainian war news stuff. And yeah, if if this episode sounds a bit weird, then, uh, well, that's because my voice hasn't really come back just yet. Ukrainians are still continuing to uh, attack all over the place. There are massive artillery fire from both sides, and Ukrainians are keeping up the pressure. However, they are not moving as fast as before, which could be explainable with the fact that they need to kind of fortify the positions that they had retaken recently. So, currently, although the front is kind of going more quiet, well, there are there are other weird things happening in Russia tied to this war and with the whole mobilization thing. So, we'll, we'll focus on that here. See, a Russian Su-34 bomber plane crashed near a nine-story apartment building in Yeysk, a town in Russia's Krasnodar region. That's uh, not that far from Ukraine. This was reported by the Interfax, citing the town's emergency dispatch service. The plane was carrying a full load of ammunition, and it crashed into the communal yard of the building at uh, 47-1 Krasnaya Street around 6.20 p.m. local time on October the 17th. On impact, the ammunition abroad the plane exploded, and a fire spread to a high-rise building that housed around 600 people. The death toll so far has risen to about 13. MASH, a Telegram news channel, has published a video made just before the crash showing the plane flying low over the neighborhood. Following the crash and the eruption of a massive fire, Yers District Hospital set up 11 intensive care beds and 8 operating rooms to cope with the emergency. At least one of the victims was there by 8 p.m. local time. The massive fire has damaged no less than 17 apartments in the building near the crash site, and the town emergency dispatch service has information about 45 apartments with some degree of fire damage. 
in one of the building's sections, floors have collapsed all the way from the 5th to the 9th floor. The Regional Emergency Service also says that apartments between the 1st and the 5th floors caught fire. The local telegram channel Overherdenjeysk has cited its own subscribers, saying that some people had to jump from the upper stories, which also increased the death toll. Well, there are quite a few wounded as well. The total living area engulfed in the flames is about 2,000 square meters, about 21,500 square feet, said the town emergency service. The government reports that all of the regional and district fire and rescue brigades are working at the location. By 8.30 p.m., the remnants of the plane had been extinguished. By 9 p.m., the town emergency dispatch service reported that the fire in the building had been extinguished. So, this was interesting, because this bomber crashed after one of its engines caught fire while the plane was gaining altitude. And the two pilots managed to eject from the plane and supposedly survived. The bomber took off from, the, from a southern military district airfield for a training flight. According to the pro-Kremlin war blogger Alexander Kotz, the main version of what happened is that birds got into one of the aircraft's engines at takeoff. Kotz claims that the Su-34 was carrying shells and that detonated into the crash. He thinks that the plane belonged to the 277th Bombardment Aviation Regiment. The Russian Investigative Committee has opened the new criminal case in the connection to the crash without really explaining what article of the criminal code has been violated. The Attorney General's office is uh, clearly investigating the circumstances. An hour after the crash, Vladimir Putin, of course, ordered that all possible help be sent to those affected. And, uh, however, that will happen, yeah, very doubtful, since even now, you know, mobilized who are dying on the front lines, and we have confirmed studies about them dying in droves and everything. Their families aren't receiving any info, and their bodies aren't being retaken anyways. So, why would you believe that um, yet another example of Russians not particularly caring about their own people and how everything works there, pro tip very badly, well, yeah, this didn't really work out for them. And knowing how the whole sanction affair is affecting various Russian plane parts, I highly doubt that this crash was caused by uh, birds. I, I believe that this is yet another case of everyone over being overworked there, since the mobilized, well, um, they're being used as meat shields and not being trained properly, and producing spare parts for airplanes and maintaining them. Well, that's a bit too difficult for Russia at this given moment. And this um, accident also ties into whole attitude change in Russia towards, um, towards the war. Kirill Rogov, a political scientist and founder of Re-Russia, an investigative journalism central, published a paper recently of, um, of an analysis of all the situation. And, uh, well, Medusa was kind enough to do a condensed version. I, I think this is an important thing to be shared around in, in English as well. Based on recent studies, we can isolate three different factions with, within the mass of Russians who support the war. The first of them can be described as the faction of total war. They think that the West cannot deal with Russia's existence in principle. They believe that the West was getting ready for an offensive war on Russia and is now trying to destroy it by the hands of Ukraine. This is also Girkin's faction by all means and everyone on the Z Telegram channels. Next, there is a just war faction, which thinks that this war is a matter of justice. 
Their idea is that the Russian and Russian-speaking residents of eastern Ukraine were persecuted by the nationalist Ukrainian government, and that Russia has duty to defend them. This narrative corresponds to the international doctrine of responsibility to protect, which justifies external interventions when there is a threat of genocide or some other humanitarian cause to intervene. This faction believes in a localized special operation, which doesn't entail a total war against the whole West. The third faction are the conformists. These people would cancel the special operation retroactively if only they could change the past. They're not so sure about the arguments used to justify the war. They think that it could have been avoided. But since it's, but since it's happening anyway, they support it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. since the leadership, apparently, according to them, just knows better. And perhaps more often than not, they feel that it would be dangerous not to show their support. What they definitely don't want is to confront the regime or its manufactured majority public opinion. The Russian propaganda represents the first two factions best. If you turn on 60 Minutes, the talk show run by, by Olga Skabeva, or my friend Solovyov's show, Everyone there will be shouting that Russia is at war with the entire collective West and NATO, and that we must all rise to defend the fatherland. But at the very same time, ordinary news programs in the main channels are talking about Russia's highly localized and very careful special operation, conducted by our highly professional armed forces to liberate our compatriots suffering under the nationalist Kyiv regime. The general mobilization was a shock to the just war party and the conformists alike. It threatens the consensus that had been until then established if pushed down everyone's throats. The change reflected immediately in the post-September 21st polls. Even the Public Opinion Fund, which mainly conducts polls for the Russian President's office, has registered this. Before mobilization, their question, what is the mood you notice most among people around you, was answered with the word anxiety just over 30% of the time. Following the mobilization decree, this answer doubled in frequency. People now mention anxiety 69% of the time. The public is in shock for mobilization, but it has not yet worked out whom to blame. Putin, meanwhile, is an experienced manipulator of the public's fears and, another, uh, and other mass emotions. Presently, he's trying to expand the total war faction at the expense of the moderates. Putin's idea is to have all Russians bound together by the blood on their hands to unite them as jointly culpable in the eyes of the world. In his criminal logic, and by the way, this comes from official report, but his criminal logic, that, that's the thing that I explained a few episodes past, so just so you know. Everyone here knows this, yet another case of this. In his criminal logic, people who lost their loved ones, friends or relatives in the war must join the party of revenge and total war. They must become involved and committed. Consider the contrast. At the beginning of the war, Putin was clearly getting ready for a 1945 cosplay. Here we are watching a victory parade. Instead, his rhetoric today reenacts 1941. Enemy at the gates, fatherland in peril, brothers and sisters, rise one up and all. But the shock of mobilization can do the opposite, and turn the two moderate factions away from supporting the war at all. 
Before the mobilization, the cost of resistance and protest was higher than the cost of conformity. Now the reverse is true. It's the future behavior of these former moderate war supporters, whose worldview has just been shattered, that will decide the future of public opinion in Russia. Among the different factions within the Russian leadership, and even within Putin's innermost circle, the War Party, is a definite minority. Few people watched the broadcast of the Security Council meeting that preceded Russia's recognition of the DNR and LNR last February triggering the war. The key speakers at that meeting were Mr. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patroshev, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, and Sergei Narishkin, the Director of Foreign Intelligence. Putin asked them a question, quote, Americans don't want to negotiate with us, talking to them is useless. Shall we move on to decisive actions recognizing the LNR and DNR? End quote. Every single one of those five speakers said that the president is right, but we could try again and give the West another chance. This got Putin very nervous, so he began trolling the Rishkin. Then Lavrov and Shoigu piped up again, and suddenly they had a different idea. It's Putin who dragged the elites and the people into the war. He simply put everyone before the act. And Elvira Nobuyulian's attempt of silent protest at that meeting, by sitting at the table with her arms crossed looking down, only led to Putin's demonstrative appointment of Nobuyulian as the head of the central bank. Everyone else understood that the situation rules uh, resistance and protest. The rest of that circle don't even have Nobuyulian's courage. This doesn't mean that all division has vanished. Lately, Russia's military failures have been encouraging ferment at the top. Its main evidence is not so much what Kadyrov and Prigozhin are saying, but that Putin himself has changed his conception of the war. Not once, but two times already. Putin's first conception of the war, the way in which he framed it, was Blitzkrieg on Ky or Kyiv in three days. This failed due to the absolute incompetence into those of those calculations. He then moved on to the second idea, which was to limit the special operation to the southeast of Ukraine. This failed too, due to the West's cooperation with Ukraine on the one hand, and Russia's contract army's inability to keep up with its losses by replenishing itself. It became clear that the Russian army could not hold on to such large occupied territories. The third conception of the war, finally embraced by Putin, is mobilization. And here, too, we see more of the same organizational incompetence of Putin's system. Even the key propagandists are now pointing this out, though without criticizing Putin personally. The failure of all three Putin's war conceptions, one after another, is definitely something that under undermines his image. For the past 20 years, this image had two key aspects. First, Putin's governmental machine was supposed to be competent and relatively effective. Second was the idea that, one way or another, in the end, Putin wins. If he finds himself in a losing situation, he will escalate and he will win. This is the basis of his public image as a powerful and successful leader. But today, the elites are witnessing him fail. Three epic fails in a row, in fact. This confronts them with a choice, and what they're choosing is not a winning strategy, but the preferable strategy for not losing. Nuclear war is a big and complicated subject, where few people can say anything of value about the real possible scenarios. The one thing we can say is this. There is no limit to Putin's fear or defeat his terror of having to acknowledge it, and his desire to avoid a public admission of incompetence. He has built his entire career and his personal image on the idea that his government machinery is flawlessly effective. This is very dangerous. But we must remember that nuclear calls cannot be made unilaterally. And since the elites have seen that prior escalation steps only made things worse, it'll be hard to convince them to embrace yet another round of escalation. In this setting, Putin's sudden, hypothetical death would overjoy and thrill the elites, while at the same time causing a huge fight among the bulldogs under the rug. 
Putin's government machine contains an internal bloc, the president's administration, which often plans different political campaigns. This bloc spent two months on internal polemics about how to conduct the Ukrainian referendums to make them convincing. Then, suddenly, someone stepped in and said, that's it, we're doing it the day after tomorrow and the annexation is in another couple of days. This is clearly out of character, since this very same machinery has previously planned elaborate political campaigns and always very thoroughly. In this case, the situation was clearly forced, and in the rush to get things done, no one cared any longer about making the referendums as much as appear convincing. We're making a snowman. Never mind, it's the summer, we have our orders. Potemkin's village in all its glory. Same thing with mobilization. It looked like some late Soviet campaign. The party bosses come up with something, local governments rush to execute the orders, and it all ends in some monstrous embarrassment. The cause of all this rushing around is the collapse of Putin's second conception of this war as a special operation. He did not respond to emerging threats, the loss of artillery advantage thanks to the Western weapons supply to Ukraine, and the difficulties with replenishing the Russian army. His failure became clear when Ukrainians began to advance along two different directions, and everyone understood that the front was collapsing. And on the background of all of this, well, Russian forces yet again shelled multiple Ukrainian cities on the morning of October 18th. Ukrainian authorities declared an air raid alert for the entire country. According to Dnipropetrovsk regional gover governor Valentin Rezhyshenko, Russia carried out two missile strikes on an energy infrastructure target in Dnipro, causing it to catch on fire. The attack caused several of the city's districts to lose power and took a pumping station out of commission. Kharkiv mayor Ihor Terehov reported that one of the city's industrial facilities was shelled. There were two groups of explosions in five minutes, he wrote in Telegram. Metro service has been suspended in the city. In Zhitomir, an energy supply facility was shelled twice, while an unspecified infrastructure target in Kiev was hit three times. Ukrainian official Kirillo Timoshenko reported, Both cities are experiencing power outages. In Mykolaiv, missile strikes hit a flower market and a two-story residential building, according to regional governor Vitaly Kim. At least one person was found dead among the ruins. So, shelling continues, it's not as intensive as before, and we're carrying on our coverage. Now, I have to get back on my interviews to get some full long-form episodes out, but we're back in business. Please consider becoming our patrons at patreon.com slash border. If you're a one-time donation guy, theeasternborder.lv is where you should go. There's the donate button there, that'll take you to where you can help us out. But, um, yeah. We're kind of healthy, so we're back doing this. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.